Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Shazam! Welcome, podcast pals. Jay Jacobs here with the latest episode of the Job Shop Show. Have you ever thought about running two facilities geographically far apart from one another? I think it's tough enough running one shop in one location, let alone manage a second far away. So that's a topic we're going to explore today with Brian Kippen of CAD Models and Prototypes, located in both the San Francisco Bay Area as well as Vermont, both sides of the coast. As like many shop owners, his journey has had the typical bumps to it, and we're going to get into some of that and see if there's some experience shares that might be of value to you as well. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Brian. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate you spending the time with me for this. So we are here in late March 2020 in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. How is that affecting your shop, both, I guess, in the San Francisco Bay Area as well as Vermont? So at this point um, in the San Francisco Bay Area, we've been on uh, shelter in place for about two weeks now. Um, because mm-hmm. I don't consider my shop essential. I mean, I could go around and figure out a way to become an essential shop. Um, we really aren't an essential uh, manufacturing facility. We don't specialize in medical devices that are out there working for PPE. Um, and we also, um, we're, not a, we're not a shop that's doing aerospace that's currently in production or, or working like that. So at this point, I've um, have my staff currently shelter in place. They're still on payroll. They're still being paid to, to appear to be working, but they don't have to appear at work. Um, so for the most part, things at the shop have slowed down to almost a halt. Um, I myself have been going in to maintain, uh, a bit of work that's continuous coming in um, but we're operating at about 35 percent so that's that's on the west coast on the east coast um, we just started the east coast facility got all the equipment up and got it up and running and it's currently uh, sitting stagnant Uh, I was supposed to be there in March kind of getting things going some more but because of the shelter in place I decided it was probably not wise to go to two international airports twice in mm. a couple week period. So things right. are a little scary. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a tough time to be a small business owner, particularly with the shelter in place. And 
just for the podcast listener, if the video gets, excuse me, if the audio gets a little weird, it is because, again, this is a time where so many people are on the internet and the bandwidth just isn't always as good as it should be. So I apologize in advance if that happens. One of the things that impressed me, Brian, is you are a hands-on shop owner. Did you have any hobbies as a kid that might have given you a glimpse that this is where you might take your career, something you might be doing to actually get paid? Uh, I have to say that my hobbies as a kid were taking things apart. Um, I spent a lot of time with, you know, my father would bring home broken items or just items randomly and I would get to take them apart. So for probably the first 15 years of my life, I took everything apart. Um, and, and really what happened is, is it wasn't until I got into automobiles that I realized putting things together was just as fun. Um, well, taking things apart is hands-on, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so it, when, it was one of those times where, you know, I taken things apart, I got to see a lot of stuff. How did you get into automobiles? Uh, well, growing up in Vermont, um, cars became the route to freedom. So <clears> if, you could, if you could have a car, that means you could go somewhere. And I grew up kind of with a family with not a ton of money. Um, so I, got a, I was able to get a car when I was 15 for the, the price of a new battery, which was $76. And... <laughs> So along with the $76 car came, you know, the other couple thousand dollars worth of issues. Uh, right. So the car needed a clutch, it needed brakes, it needed things like that. So, you know, that's, that's how I got into cars. I mean, I was always into anything that was mechanical, whether it was telephones or, you know, sleds or, or, um, dirt scooters, anything that was broken that I could get my hands on, I started trying to figure out how to fix it. Um, so it, it was, you know, that was kind of like my entrance into, into realizing that it was a lot of fun to see how things worked. Well, so there's definitely a, you can look back and you, you are hands-on. You, you just told us a couple ways there. How did you get into the actual job shop manufacturing? Did you go to four-year college? What, what was that path like? Uh, that path was a little odd. So growing up, I, you know, Vermont's a great place to grow up. You get to, all your parents get to see what's going on. You know, you're never really out from underneath somebody's eyes. Um, but at the same time, there's not a lot of opportunity. Um, so I decided that I was going to go to college. Um, I was going to go to Weber State University in Utah. Um, unfortunately, college worked out for only about two or three weeks for me. And I realized that it two was or three weeks, two or three weeks. What, what happened, a couple things happened. But the main thing that happened is I, I was able to place out of my core classes within the first week. I just took tests. <laughs> most of them, most of the problem with it was a, an automotive school. And a lot of the problem is, is trades tend to you know, they tend to send you to remedial math, remedial English, even in a mm. university environment. And I was very frustrated with that. So after placing out of my English and my math, um, I realized that the expense for college 
um, and not knowing exactly what I wanted to do didn't make sense. So I hightailed it out of Ogden, Utah and went back to Vermont. Mm-hmm. And um, two years I spent working at automotive dealerships, both Honda and Chrysler. Mm-hmm. And think encouragement of my mom who uh, said that I was probably not going to be able to get much out of staying in Vermont. She encouraged me to go to the West Coast. Um, <laughs> and that sounded like a great idea. So I moved back in with my parents for about seven months, saved about $1,500 and threw all my belongings into my pickup truck and drove West without much of a plan. A little silly. Um, so <laughs> Did you know that you were going to end up in the San Francisco Bay Area or was LA or you just started driving? I started driving. I kind of had the San Francisco Bay Area in my sights because I have a half brother in the area. Um, I didn't, I was 20 years old at the time. I didn't notify him that I was on my way out. Um, wait, wait, you didn't tell him you were coming? <laughs> no, I didn't tell him I was coming. So, so what ended up happening is I, I gave him a phone call from a pay phone because this was before or cell phones were, uh, you know, mainstream for, for a rural Vermonter. They still aren't mainstream there. <laughs> right. Might not have service. Um, but, uh, so I got out to the San Francisco Bay Area, called my half-brother up, said, hey, I'm in the town. Uh, he said, great, it'd be good to see you. Um, and so I, I went over, spent the night, the first night in the Bay Area with my half-brother, and they were, he and his wife were, just about to go on a trip. So I was then homeless. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So a great thing happened. And somebody who my mom had talked about for a really long time is this gentleman by the name of Patrick McCorder. Mm -hmm. I I left my brother's house wondering what I was going to do next. And my mom, uh, I called my mom up and I said, here's what's going on. I'm, I'm in the Bay area. I can't really find pay phones. I have the choice. I can get a cell phone, which is going to cost. Back then, it was you needed to pay for a security deposit on a cell phone. So this was 2003. I said, that's going to cost me about $300, and I have $1,000 left. If I do that, I might not be able to come home. And she said, go get the cell phone. (laughs) Really? Yeah. So I went and got the cell phone, and then she said, call Patrick. So Patrick, who's a guy I had heard about as a child and not really remembered what was going on with him. So I called him up and he said, absolutely, come on by. Let's have a look at you. A little random. <laughs> Never met this guy. I had to give him my mom's maiden name. Um, gotcha. But, so I, Patrick McCorder um, was a model maker. So prior to, you know, prior to having an industrial designer created a 3d model that they could show model makers were kind of were very integral in the manufacturing process you'd have Mm -hmm. an industrial designer design something a model maker build the model or the prototype and then engineering would get a hold of it and figure out how to build it so just i just want to interject for the audience that's how i got my start essentially in the job shop manufacturing i went to work for santon engineering which was a pattern shop on the north shore of boston and the pattern makers who would make the patterns for metal castings also had the right sort of skills to make models so 
they became the premier model shop in the Boston area. And absolutely, I, I probably, Don Jones was probably the equivalent of Patrick back then, just a master model maker. Yeah, it was something that I never realized. I mean, growing up, I thought that everything came from Walmart. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was really interesting to see, see this shop. I mean, he had a he built his own CNC machine mm -hmm. um, with an analam controller, and uh, you know, he he had everything. He's he has everything in his small little shop, and um, so that's that was my first taste of seeing how things were made. Um, mm -hmm. I, the first thing I built was a door handle for a 1964. So he gave you a job? No, he didn't give me a job. He, he gave me, he gave me insight. Okay. Um, what did, he, what did I, he give you a place to stay? He did give me a place to stay. That was, he said, you can sleep on my floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, right now, particularly at this time, a lot of folks are put in a situation where they may be losing their housing. We, we just don't know how all this is going to play out. And I just remind folks that look back at how you got started and how people extended generosity to you and think about that uh, as these times develop and how you might be generous to folks who are just put into a situation and circumstances where they're not as fortunate as you. Oh, absolutely. I think that's yeah. really important to remember where you started. Um, uh, so that was kind of my introduction to that, but I needed a job right away. So right. the first thing I did is I ran off and I went to every single automotive dealership and I was on a, it was on a Monday. I went to three different shops, um, who then told me to go to three other shops. And by the end of the day, Monday, I was offered a job at a Hyundai dealership. Um, I didn't have much, much, uh, knowledge of the Hyundais, but you know, an automobile is an automobile to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I took job and then within, within three months, I was quite, quite frustrated. Here I am in the San Francisco Bay area doing exactly what I was doing on the East coast. <laughs> right. So here, here's what happened. I decided, all right, I'm, I need a, I need a change. I came out here for a change. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to join the Marines. Oh, so, <laughs> so here's this harebrained idea. I'm going to join the Marines. Um, my, my parents were never interested in me joining the military, uh, but I wasn't under their roof anymore. So mm -hmm. I could just go and do this because nobody was really paying attention to what I was doing. So that's what I did. I joined the Marine Corps. So this was, this was 2000, I guess this was 2003 in, uh, I joined the, the Marines, signed my papers, and I was going to go to MCRD San Diego in April of 2004. So mm -hmm. April 2004, I go to boot camp. Um, and, you know, boot camp was not fun. Uh, <laughs> I was a small guy, still am a small guy. Um, it was, it was difficult on my body. It was definitely, it's one of those things. It was an experience of a lifetime. Um, mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, I ended up breaking both of my feet pretty early on in, uh, in training. Um, How'd you do that? 
we were doing a casualty evacuation exercise. Uh, the guy I was paired with outweighed me by a good 50 pounds. Um, and so the exercise worked uh, for the point that I, I don't give up. So I, I carried him for the mile or whatever the distance was. And something had happened. I stepped on rocks. This was in San Diego, so it's full of rocks. Uh, um, and and I didn't. It was in uh, boot camp. It's it's called. Um, it was second phase, which was at Pendleton at that point in time, which is a lot of outdoor activity. Um, so, you know, we're we're getting close to to late mid May, and it's warm. Um, and we're camping and things like that. So I didn't have to take off my boots. I knew that something was wrong um, because my feet hurt, but I decided not to take off my boots for that. The rest of that week, I'd sleep in my sleeping bag. With your boots um, on. With my boots on. After that, um, that week, which is called field week, I, they did a bit of a exam on every, every single Marine recruit and my feet were both really swollen. So they sent me to medical. They did x-rays. I had done a couple, I did a spiral fracture on my third metatarsal on my left foot and a, and a secondary fracture on my right foot. Um, so that essentially- uh, That ended your, yeah. So you ended up back in San Francisco? Yeah, after, after another two and a half months, um, I, I healed. I've completed boot camp. I came, I went to uh, MCT afterwards for it's uh, prior to the MOS school and ended up breaking my feet again. And then having to be, I was honorably discharged for medical reasons after that. Wow. So I came back to the San Francisco Bay area with my tail between my legs. Wow. <laughs> Essentially yeah. said, all right, that didn't work. The cars are still not working. But I was able to save enough money to kind of figure out what I wanted, like that I needed to have time. Um, so I moved back into Patrick's place, tell him what I'm doing. And he said, I need you, you need to go and meet John Dove. John Dove, also a model maker in the San Francisco Bay Area, had a shop. He started in, uh, I believe, the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, he used, he had his background working with IDO, David Kelly Design, um, and he started his own shop, basically a model and prototype shop with one CNC machine. And mm -hmm. uh, I decided to sweep his floor. Um, so I swept his floor and he taught me how to do urethane casting. He taught me mm. how CNC machines worked. Um, I didn't get my hands on the software because that was, you know, a little higher level stuff. Mm -hmm. About uh, a month later, my mom came out to the San Francisco Bay Area and she said, oh, while we're here, we should go have lunch with Ethan. Ethan was a friend of hers from college, owns a company called Performance Structures. Mm -hmm. Performance Structures is really well known for creating the cloud gate in Chicago, the bean. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so the bean was made in Oakland. Um, so we went to lunch with this this gentleman. And my mom talked me up, and he said, "Well, do you know how to grind metal?" 
(laughs) Well, I've done some car body work. I can probably figure it out. Mm -hmm. So at that point, um, I was hired on to, to help build these small versions of the bean for all the people that donated money for the project. So here I am working in the shop and they have a, they had one huge CNC machine. It was a Jobs, a six axis Jobs. It was an old Boeing machine. And that's what was used to create the bean. Is that the type of one that you can stand in? Yep. It's a gantry mill. It was, yep. I think it was a 14 foot X, seven foot Y, and about three feet in Z. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at this machine while I'm grinding stuff. It's cutting metal. And I think that's about the coolest thing in the world. Here I am with my hands getting dirty. And there's this machine that's just doing stuff by itself with somebody riding on it. So I kept asking the people who are running it if they could show me little things. And I ended up asking the guy who was programming it if he could show me things. Mm-hmm. And he was using SurfCam to program that machine. And at John Dove's place, I was also using SurfCam. So I figured if I could stay late enough at work, I could figure out how to use SurfCam and then I could couple the two together so I could mm. show these guys that I could actually figure software out. That's what yeah. I did. But, you know, with many jobs, your first job, they know where you started. It's really difficult to go from where you started to having, having somebody give, have confidence in what you do. So I took these two jobs. You know, that's, I, I just want to stop you there. I just was thinking about that. That's really an interesting statement. And I think one that us as owners should think about a little bit because I think of some of the folks at Rapid who started in shipping, for instance, and the roles that they evolved into. And I can't say that I wasn't without some prejudice against somebody who started in a role like that. But I, the success of people who started, whether it was grinding or in shipping or what other role, some, you know, some of the basic estimating roles we had it's you have to really put that behind you and think about not not the the past but what what the person is showing you today so i think that's you know it's very important to know that and i think you know i was afforded the opportunity to start learning the programming at both jobs but yeah i really wanted more and i was you know when you're really good at something and you really have an attention to detail. Um, it's frustrating when you're not given the opportunity. Right. So, so they, they lost the sound. Is this the performance place that you left then? So I both, I left both performance structures and John Dove models and prototypes. I was working mm. at both simultaneously. Um, mm. And, and I took all the knowledge that I had learned and probably the maybe 17 parts I learned how to program and machine and went, for a couple interviews, um, mm-hmm. you know, every single shop is slightly different. And in the Bay Area, you know, there's a lot of prototyping done here, right? And it's still a really small community. Uh, one of the companies that I went to, I did an interview with a company called Philip Roberts Models. Um, he saw that that my work history, my current employer was John Dove, and he said, 
I, I can't even interview you. If you're working for him, I don't want to take away from what he's doing. So, <laughs> so that was, that was a, you know, that was my first experience with finding out how small the, the model making and prototyping community in the Bay area is. Yeah. Yeah. So I started looking on Craigslist and I submitted my resume to anybody who was looking for a CNC programmer. Um, and I ended up sending my resume to a few companies, got a couple interviews, and then I went on an interview down in Sunnyvale, California. There was two gentlemen in this interview. Um, one was Donald Goosens, who owns Goose Manufacturing. The other one is Art Via, who owns A&J Product Solutions. So here I am at this point, 23 years old, um, with some pretty complicated parts in my lap that I'm showing them and explaining to them how I made them. Mm-hmm. And they, they gave me a couple parts and said, hey, how would you make this? So I, I walked them through how I would make these things. And, um, and I, the power went out during this interview. And, you know, so there we are sitting in the, in the dark saying, and I said, well, this is a little awkward, um, but I would really like, I would really like some more information about what you do here. Um, so I, I got, I got a little glimpse of what a prototype shop that had, um, six CNC machines and, and, uh, a pretty decent number of, uh, employees. Mm-hmm. And they, at that point, were working on uh, a lot of stuff for memory test. Um, so this, so that was, I guess that was 2006. And we were, we were working on a lot of memory test stuff um, at that point in a lot of the Bay Area. And I, I went home thinking, well, I guess that was a good interview. Uh, and then later that day, I, I believe that was a Friday and Monday, I got a phone call from Art saying, we'd like you to join our team. When can you start? Um, and because I'd been working for these two companies, Performance and John Dove Models, I decided that I should give them both notice. I gave them both about three weeks of notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I was really excited to start this new job. And I started feeling I guess you call it senioritis where I really, I really wanted to get into building stuff more. Um, so I, I worked my butt off. I finished all the tasks that I was doing and I started this new job and it really was, I was over my head. I really was over my head because they were moving fast. They were doing a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, here I am thrown in a mix of new people with different machines. They were running all Haas machines. I had been running a jobs with a Heidehain controller and a Fadal with the Fadal controller. And, uh, and they were setting things differently. And, and, uh, so I was over my head for about a week, but then I started figuring things out and I stayed late. And I asked a lot of questions and, and I started getting my own projects and it was a lot of fun to, to start building things. Um, and, you know, I quickly, I quickly was able to build things faster and, and learn and hold things differently. And, and, uh, it was exciting. Yeah. Um, it wasn't too much time before, um, you know, 
I realized that the company was doing a lot of work for only a few clients. And uh, I asked if we could start if what we were doing about that. I was asking the owner, Art, a lot of questions. And um, meanwhile, I'm thinking, where's this guy, Don Goose, who I had a couple conversations with at my interview. So he disappeared. <laughs> so he, then I'm, I'm working at my computer and he walks in and he says, hey, I got a question for you. So come to find out, he owns his own shop. And uh, I'd actually applied for a job with him, but he didn't think that I had the skills necessary for production. He thought I was definitely a good fit for this prototype shop. But he had a couple questions on helping build things. And so I got to help him do production work, a couple programs here and there. Um, it was a lot of fun to know the difference between, you know, one part and somebody who's building 500 of something. Right. So, um, you know, it, so how, I didn't mean to interrupt, but so uh, how did this, how did this, all this background get you into starting CAD models and prototypes? So if we fast forward, um, I was able to get to the point where, where at A&J Product Solutions, I was upgraded to director of operations. I hmm. worked a lot with clients. I had meetings. Uh, Art had confidence in my ability to perform at a level where I could really run their shop. And I started thinking about it, realizing that I was spending 70 hours a week at work. And although it was a lot of fun and I was building a lot of things, I realized that I should probably do this on my own. I don't, I don't have, I don't have all this, you know, I don't have a house. I don't have kids. I don't have a mortgage. Um, you know, I, I can take on this risk, but in order mm -hmm. to do that, I was going to need some, some kind of capital more than I had. Mm -hmm. So I went and I, I approached John, who I was my previous employer. I'd still maintained a good relationship with him. And I said, Hey, I'm thinking about leaving. And I think I want to start my own shop. Um, would you be interested in partnering with me? And I said, I don't know what that's going to look like, but you know, you have this space. Um, you've got a client base. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, knowledge that I can learn from. And, uh, so, you know, I bit the bullet and I, I decided that that's, this is what I'm going to do. Um, so this was in, uh, October of 2011 that we decided yeah. to join forces. You, you and John. Yep. And, uh, I had been planning this since probably May of May of 2011, I gave my notice in July of 2011, and I ended up working until September of 2011 for A&J Product Solutions. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Labor Day weekend was my last time, last weekend that, or week at work. Um, and, you know, I had ordered a Haas VF3SS and was waiting for that to be delivered sometime in early October. October. So I was excited. So with um, you and with you and, and John, you did know, you? It was good. With, with you and John, did you did you buy into his company? Did you form a new company? Because you just said you bought you bought a a Haas. How did you did you have a legal 
operating agreement between the two of you? Just tell me a little bit yeah. of, of that structure. So what we did is we, we had this idea that we were going to form a new company, but mm -hmm. I needed to, I needed to have a piece of his company. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I bought half of his company for $168,000. How um, did you come up with that number? Well, how did, how did he, how did you decide that was fair and he decide that it was fair as well? So that number was, we basically looked at things, looked at his annual revenue, looked at um, the knowledge that he'd had, you know, industry experience since 1984 is, is kind of a lot, a lot. Um, and the number, I'm not entirely sure how we came up with that number. We came up with that number in discussion with a lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't afford it by having $168,000 in the bank. I afforded it by um, asking John if, if he, would, he would sell me the half of his company on terms. So okay. he agreed to that. He agreed to, uh, to selling me half of his company on terms. Uh, so I was going to pay $1,500 a month for 10 years um, to buy half of his company. Okay. So in uh, March of 2011, we had gotten through all the legal, and sorry, March of 2012, we'd gotten through all the legal um, creation of the, the corporation, CAD models and prototypes. And CAD originally stood for Kippen and Dove, D-O-V-E, Dove is John's last gotcha. name. Gotcha. Um, and uh, so we're off and running. We. We've got a new facility. We've got a we've got a new space. We moved out of Oakland into Alameda. Mm -hmm. um, got 3,400 square feet with 600 square feet of office, um, and dumped the the 1997 Fidal and the 2011 Haas VF3 in that nice, beautifully epoxied area, and mm -hmm. a couple manual machines and a table saw, and and I was feeling really good. I was. I was ready to go. Um, I had changed my LinkedIn account to say that I started a new company and uh, I started getting people asking me if I could do various things, if I could build um, parts for, you know, prototyping plastic parts, prototyping aluminum parts. Mind you, mm -hmm. John had never run much in the way of metal. It was primarily plastic for model making. And uh, right. and uh, a lot of urethane casting and a lot of silicone molding. And I was I was really interested in machining because it's really fun to hear those machines make noise. Mm -hmm. And money. And money, yeah. And you know, it wasn't it wasn't too long after that. It was about I'd say eighteen months. I'm definitely building more and more clients, and and the client base is going up and. I'm starting to look at the numbers and, and uh, realizing that it looks like John feels out of place here. And, you know, I, hmm. you know, one of those things where I'm starting to be, be a little cautious about what's going on. And I talked to him and, and uh, at this point I'd already made a hire and uh, bought another machine. So we bought a Haas VF4 SS and, um, and I'm looking at the numbers and I'm looking at the production levels of, of 
basically the work that I'm bringing in and I'm looking at the level of work that John's bringing in and they're, they're going in different, at different rates. And essentially it, it appeared that we we're running two different shops. And uh, so were you pretty much managing and overseeing the work you brought in and then he was doing the same on his and you just sort of shared the equipment and the space? Yeah, we, that's essentially what happened, but they tend, there was less and less work that he was bringing in. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't a hundred percent know whether that was because I was utilizing all the equipment and he was still left with using the old pedal, but you know, it was, it was becoming apparent that I was growing leaps and bounds and, and it wasn't growing together because I had completely different skills than he did. And, mm. and, uh, so I had to start bringing up the conversation of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that this is going to continue to work um, because of, of how things are, how things are going. Um, and, you know, it was, it's, uh, it's like a relationship, you know, you tell somebody that there's a problem and, you know, it's, then that problem becomes more and more apparent. Um, I'm trying to grow a business. I, hired my first hire and and then my second and uh and we're you know we're running a real corporation we have employees we have healthcare, right. we have things like that and uh I, we sat down and said i told john i said i need i need i think think that this isn't going to work and i think that now is the time where we figure out how to how to make it work before it gets ugly because right. i was you know Nobody can give you a resentment. You can only develop that on your, your own. But when you start seeing things and, and numbers creeping the other direction and you, you're working with somebody who wants to take on less risk because they're at a certain age in life and you want to take on more risk, you know, it can, in a partnership, it can be great. But if you're trying to grow, you need to assume that risk is not always a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So in uh it took about eight months of deliberation and and uh john threw out the the number of one million dollars that's what it was going to take to buy him out for the remaining 50 percent for the remaining 50 percent hmm. and you know at this, this point he, he until i had paid off the hundred sixty eight thousand dollar note that i had to him he was 51 percent owner of cad i was 49 and we had hmm. a two percent we had a 2% um, that would switch over to me once I paid that off. And uh, so then I would have, I would have control of the company. And that, that actually, that scared me because if John didn't want to work with me, then here I was, had created something that I felt that I had really been integral in creating. Right. And uh, you know, I, went down to one of my large clients in the South Bay and I had a meeting with them and said, here's, here's what I am. I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether I, I quit my job and I ask you guys for a job or I buy out my partner and I've got a scary figure. And, um, and I thought about it. I, I got a job offer and I looked at what that'd be. Then I realized, if I start working for another company and I'm only doing that one company's work, 
it's not going to be as diverse as owning your own shop. And I really enjoyed not only having diverse work, but also having employees and also having the customer and client mm -hmm. meetings and being able to help. Being your own boss. Right. Being your own boss is, uh, you know, yeah. it's the American dream, but it is also, it's difficult. So did you end up paying him the million dollars or did you come up well, with a compromise? We pretty much up until about the last week when I, I, I had a, I was going for a drive and I said, that's, that's way too much money. I mean, there's, I, there's no way to come up with that. Mm -hmm. That number, if I, I were to, to uh, spend $50,000 and have a, somebody come in and do a corporate um, valuation, there's no way that this company is worth that. Mm -hmm. So I said to John, well, what if I walked out? Would you pay me this? And he said, no, I, there's too much equipment. I don't have the client base to support this shop. Oh, I wouldn't pay you that money. And I, so I said, well, how much money, how much money would it, would you pay? And he said, well, I'm not in the situation. I don't want to buy it. So what ended up happening is I, I then said, this was two weeks before we were supposed to sign the documentation for $1 million. He was well enough along a path where he'd pretty much stopped working altogether because it was a stressful situation for him to be in. Mm -hmm. So I, I said 700,000, I can do 700,000. And he said, okay. And we shook hands and he allowed me with a 2% interest to buy him out over 10 years mm -hmm. for $700,000. So you're on your own now. Yep. <laughs> and you are all the growth that you're creating is, is for yourself. You've got the freedom to operate and you've done well. And you now have a second location in Vermont. Exactly. So, why not grow more in San Francisco? Why not that perhaps headache is the, the right word, but man, it certainly is a lot easier to have everybody under one roof. So why didn't you grow San Francisco more or, you know, change locations or well, what, what prompted Vermont? So what, what prompted Vermont is I've been looking at expanding and I, I'd looked at expanding and getting a larger facility in the Bay Area, but the Bay Area is really expensive. It's, you know, it's expensive. Um, California is expensive for manufacturing. Mm -hmm. but also, you know, it's, it's really difficult for skilled trades. It's, it's difficult to hire people to find talent. And we're all competing with the same, with a lot of large companies. Google and Facebook, they're all willing to pay an experienced machinist hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars who has the capability of fully running the shop. And that's that's really wow. hard to compete with <laughs> as a small shop. Yeah, yeah. And say say that again, a hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars. 
exactly to if you if you're somebody who's been able to run a shop and has the experience to manage people and build a facility out it's very easy to walk into a company and say here's here's what i can do i can help so so but so if there's somebody who's not a shop owner who's listening with those skills and they're just going wow i should move out to the bay area i'll make lots of money uh, what sort of house would that on a salary like that what would that buy you? Well, unfortunately, because I, I know housing is it is quite expensive out there. It wouldn't buy you a house. Uh, one hundred fifty thousand dollar a year salary with a with a significant other that also makes that makes the house affordable. Mm -hmm. um, a small starter home, uh, about eight hundred to thousand square feet in Oakland or Berkeley, will cost you between eight hundred fifty and a million dollars just a starter and that's a that's a pretty small house it's maybe a one bedroom with a closet for a second bedroom uh so you know your mortgage is going to be right around six thousand dollars with uh insurance and you know that's so anyway i just want to i just want to put that <laughs> just want to put that in perspective for yeah. it but it makes sense that it, it's tough for you to expand in the bay area yeah. And, you know, the skilled trades gap is, is a big thing. And I think it's a nationwide issue. But every single employee that works for me now is somebody who had a skill that I thought that I could help develop into somebody who could be a CNC machinist. Hmm. Um, and that's primarily problem solving and also being receptive to new things. So the entire staff at CAD models um is incredibly diverse in background um not a single one of them had a cnc machine prior to working for me um well perhaps they'd seen a laser cutter or something along those lines but yeah. not an actual full cnc machine so you you selected vermont and is that because you grew up there partially because i grew up there also um in in a sense, I was I was looking at expanding in Detroit or Philadelphia or Chicago. All those places have space. It's a lot more affordable. They have manufacturing backgrounds, and I mm -hmm. thought it'd be quite simple to get into and start a shop. Um, Detroit, to me, has turned into a place that's a little gun shy about manufacturing. They've they've had a ton of manufacturing, um, but they don't see prototype machine shop really as different than you know a big three manufacturing facility so it, it wasn't really easy to navigate Detroit's also a pretty large city so it, it was a little difficult to navigate that situation and I basically accidentally found the Vermont location um, as as an idea what happened was I was out there for a friend's birthday and I was I was driving around and I saw this old facility that was a tractor dealership. And I ran a hypothetical on my way to the airport saying, if I would make a go at this, what are the things that are necessary? And that's space, which is there, workforce, um, which was unknown. And also for a, for a space, zoning is important. You can't just sure. Decide that you're going to start manufacturing in the in the middle of a downtown and and think that the neighbors are going to be happy about it. So, mm -hmm. so I get to the Burlington Airport 
to fly back to California. And I sent an email to the real estate agent asking about price. And I sent an email to the town office to ask about zoning. And I sent an email um, to the local technical college, Vermont Technical College, about this program that they had started three years ago called the Advanced Manufacturing Degree, which is the bachelor's degree in advanced manufacturing. By the time I got back, got to JFK, I had already had an answer from the realtor about the, the cost of the building. And the uh, person at the town who was in charge of uh, economic development let me know that zoning was East Randolph District, which meant nothing to me, but it had a 4,000 square foot um, a variance for light industrial. Okay. So I quickly sent a response to them saying, this facility is 18,000 square feet. Um, I don't think 4,000 square feet would work. Um, is there anything we can do? And the town was really quick to say, we believe that something like this is quite possible. Um, so that gave me a little bit of assurance. Um, and I had also received an email back from the, the director of the education program. And at this point it was July and he was on vacation and he said he could jump on a phone call mm -hmm. on Monday. So I had a pretty quick conversation with him, but I left the conversation knowing that there was a potential for a workforce because okay. they were educating advanced manufacturing, which meant that at least they'd, they'd gone through and notified people that things are manufactured here. <laughs> and, I was you know, going to ask, what is, when they say advanced manufacturing, what does that mean to the school? What's in the curriculum that's attractive to so some their group? facility? Um, so it's, it's a two year program. So it, Vermont Technical College offers a, an associate's degree in engineering, um, electrical and a mechanical. And after that associate's degree, if you wish, you can go on um, and select and continue into a bachelor's degree program. Um, mm -hmm. So the bachelor's degree program, if you, if you wanna be in manufacturing is this advanced manufacturing program that actually you then further your mechanical engineering degree into actual creation of, of things. Um, you also get business classes, you get, um, you get a lot more than your core engineering associate program. Um, but the school has, has five uh, Haas machines. They've, mm -hmm. got a, they've got a panel that they, the seniors sit in front of and they get a task from an actual company that has a problem and they're looking for a solution. So you end up developing a process or developing the fixture that goes out into the real world. And your degree is, is basically, by the time you're completed, you have the foundation and you have the knowledge to actually go out into the manufacturing world with enough confidence to say, here's something that I created. And so it's a real problem solving degree rather than theoretical. Correct. So you, and hands-on because right. they, yeah. you know, it's a small school, it's a small program and you know, they've spent a lot of time. Uh, some of the large companies in Vermont have manufacturing companies have, have put money into it. Have you made any hires out of there yet? I haven't made any hires yet. 
Um, there's there's a couple seniors that I'm looking at. Um, I'm not entirely sure what's going on with education right now, uh, given that everybody's shut down. I think they have a lot of time on their hands. Yeah. But they may not be able to leave their house to do anything. So Right. So I'm very I'm very eager to get back there and uh as soon as I can get out of this out of the Bay Area, I'm quite confident that I can have a couple employees there in a heartbeat. So the that definitely makes sense on why Vermont's a, a good location and you had shared with me before that you have a person who you've known for quite a while Casey Mershon who is going to run the facility for you so having having a prior relationship and and knowing that the business is in trusted hands is an important part I just want to talk a little bit about CAD models and prototypes and one of the things that really impressed me was the fact that I think you put out the number that 3,400 parts that you manufactured that is that unique part numbers last year that's exactly that's unique part numbers so how the hell did you do that with such a small number of people and what sort of automation not even in the shop I guess that's important but in the front end what sort of things are you doing to allow you to that many different part numbers through your shop so one of the things that's you know i it's a it's a secret that's not a secret and that one of the things that you can do as a small shop is is start making you, you make sure that you have a process whether that process is harebrained or not it's it's really important to create a process that you can you can aid in in streamlining any one of your projects. So a lot of shops, the education and machining started mainly with the bridge port, where the first thing you do is you'd shove a face mill in your bridge port, you crank your handle, and mm -hmm. you put an end mill in the bridge port and you crank the handle. So you'd always start from the largest tool and go to the smallest tool. And a lot of that has been been passed on to CNC machining, where you'll set up your machine with your largest tool and then continue on to your smallest tool. Mm -hmm. Well, CNC with the automatic tool changer, it doesn't care what tool is where. With a, an umbrella type uh, tool changer, mm -hmm. you know, you really save time by having your tools next to each other. But with random tool changers, side mount tool changers, it'll preload and it doesn't really matter if you have tool one and then tool 55. Mm -hmm. it, the machine is going to preload preload 55 so they're not really wasting time and mm -hmm. with a shop like ours what we really tried to do was make sure that we could cut out all the the setup time we could so by creating a tool library that may not be as advanced as as one that has you know our Haas machines have 25 tools a piece um, our five axis mill has 40 tools but you know you start to create a library that's small enough that every single machine can hold the same library, yet large enough um, to let you do almost any type of work without wasting too much time. I, I love it because that is what we employed at Rapid. The 
CAM programmers had a set list of tools that they had to use. We had a few openings for specialty tooling, but that was strongly discouraged. We wanted to use, even though it may not be the most efficient tool for that particular tool path, if you standardize, then the overall process becomes more efficient. Exactly. And with the prototype shop, if you spend five more minutes machining, that doesn't matter as much. When you get into production, five minutes for a part yeah. will yeah. kill you. But yep. you know, if you're if your end goal is to produce a part that's sellable to your client, whether it's prototype or production, the time doesn't matter as much as the throughput. With well, you actually you actually do save time. Yeah, but it's it's you save time in different places, not necessarily in machining. Right. So if for us, if if you can get a program out to a machine and get the machine running, spend time. The only thing we're selling is the product that comes off at the other end. And you know, right. massaging a program till it's the most efficient, if it takes you six hours, isn't the most efficient because it took you six hours. Yeah, and your gating item is the amount of programs a programmer can put out, not the amount of time the spindle is running. Correct. So that's that's basically that's in a nutshell the the number one. Um, what what's your win rate though? Thirty four hundred parts. Just to quote that many parts is a task in itself. I believe our win rate is about sixty. Between, 60 to 65 percent mm -hmm. um and a lot of a lot of the win rate um has to do with the ability to get a quote out quickly what do you um, mean by that well we we advertise on our website that we'll get you a quote within two hours um and we get a lot of business because at the end of the day getting your product to market anytime you can save between design and market is time that you can capitalize on. So how do you get quotes out in two hours? Well, that, that comes with a lot of time. So <laughs> I have a, my manager on the West coast is also a great programmer. Um, and he's been taught how to quote and between the two of us, uh, we can spend between five and seven hours a day quoting. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the quoting has to do with the experience with having, right. with doing 3,400 parts, you know, in a prototype, you can quickly get numbers for material and it's a lot of shooting from the hip. And, you know, it's, the process is there, but at the same time, it's difficult when you're trying to get product out the door. So how are you going to scale that? So that, even if you don't grow the shop in terms of revenue or people or anything, you can take a vacation and not cause uh, a hiccup. So uh, in, in doing the expansion, I quickly realized that this is a couple things are going to need to happen. Um, I'm really interested in, in solving problems. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ways that I've solved problems is by creating one. Um, <laughs> it's one way to force a solution. Yep. So one of the problems that I've had in growing my shop is realizing that I spend a lot of time at work and not working on the, the shop. So I spend mm -hmm. 
it's it's very common for business owners mm -hmm. to spend time at work not at the job not uh working on the job mm -hmm. um so the the problem that i created is is how do i have two shops and some time and that was making sure that my manager on the west coast is capable willing and able to run the west coast with little to no oversight for myself and mm -hmm. The discussions on that are, you know, what are the bottlenecks? And he said, if you're not here and we need projects and I'm programming, how are we going to do quoting? And I said, well, for the time being, while I'm on the East Coast, I can be your quoter. I can quote because my equipment's coming in. I have nothing to do because mm -hmm. I need the electrician to wire things up. So for three weeks, I was quoting, I was getting things ready for him. And then he would look over the quotes, figure out what date they would fit in and then fire them off. Or if he saw numbers needed to be adjusted, he would adjust them. And I started looking at software a couple years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. Who is gonna help? What kind of quoting software? There's gotta be a solution. There's enough, um, there's enough companies like Fictive or Exometry or Proto Labs, where you can throw a number up there or throw a part up there and get a number back. But for me, those numbers, they they aren't right. The, you know, they're a different shop. They're a different um, platform. And seeing a random number for a part that's you know with no manufacturing background, um, you know, it might look okay. But for a manufacturer, when you see yeah, that simple part costs a thousand dollars. Yeah, to me is could be price gouging. But the number is in front of you in an instant, and if you want to buy, you just say, "Okay, I'm willing to spend a thousand dollars." So I ended up looking and googling, and and uh, a couple of years ago at IMTS, there was a company that was advertising the ability. It was called uh, I, I believe it was called Machine time or something along those lines um and they've i don't believe they exist anymore but um somebody on linkedin looked at my profile and i had put in posting videos and things and and uh and i i looked at this company that he worked at and it was, it was called paperless parts and i so you know i'm tech savvy i know how to run the google search bar so i mm -hmm. typed in paperless parts thinking that, you know, it's another company that's an, you know, an Uber of manufacturing. No, this actually is a company that's looking to assist the manufacturer. Um, so I've, I, I want to just, that's an interesting way of phrasing the difference between paperless parts and the others out there, the fictive and the zometry. I'll, I'll not include protolab since they actually make parts themselves. But uh, the can you just expand upon that a little bit and your thoughts on that? Well, essentially, you know, if if you're if you're uploading a part to say Fictive or Exometry or Make Time used to exist, you don't really know where that data is going. So if I'm taking one of my clients' parts and I really want to get a number really quickly and I throw it up on their website. To get a number back i don't i don't have confidence that that isn't going to stay in a repository somewhere that 
you know, could get me in trouble with an NDA. So, you know, I, well, in I, particular, I'm may not be politically correct, but fictive, in fact, manufactures a lot of the parts that they sell are manufactured over in China, and they specifically have a large amount of venture funding from China. So, particularly defense parts, ITAR parts, are almost certainly exposed. Absolutely. And, you know, that on top of any intellectual property, not knowing where things go is really difficult. Um, mm -hmm. See, if, if you have an NDA as a shop in place, the last thing you want to do is put your client's projects on a website, no matter which one it is, without confidence in where it's going. So the reason why I, I bring up paperless parts is, is because they specifically create software for the manufacturer, not, not for their own, not for their own manufacturing. Um, <laughs> not, that's what intrigued me most is being, being able to work with the company potentially because that there's been a lot of them that have ideas that they can quote for projects. But this is a company that actually has people with manufacturing backgrounds, people who have actually built things, people, engineers who understand that it's not just material plus material removal equals value. It's, right. it's some and nuances. Just, like and I just wanna to say to be fair to the listener that if you don't know already, I am a co-founder paperless parts and a lot of what Brian is saying is the domain expertise and the just philosophy of how we're approaching our software is based upon my experience working and selling to job shops before starting rapid and then being a job shop owner for 16 years. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, and for me, that's, that's one of the things that's very important is knowing that the person who's been running and started this company has seen what it can take to take a flat piece of aluminum and make a thin part and realize that it, not every piece of aluminum has the right part in it because you could struggle <laughs> with a strap rate because, yep. you know, your, your part comes out and it's, you didn't, you didn't didn't know that using a one inch end mill on a part that's going to finish out at twenty thousandths was going to warp it, uh, you know. And and a lot of these, a lot of this computer algorithm stuff says, you know, if it's a huge pocket, just go in there with the largest mill possible, which could be a four inch shell mill, and just take it out. Um, right. In the manufacturing world, sometimes you're using a one thirty second end mill to a, do a large surface because there's it's not adding heat to an area. Right. And it's important for uh, somebody who's doing a lot of quoting to know that they can not only see a quote quickly, but be able to adjust the numbers. And I think that that was the thing that was most important when I started looking at the potential of using paperless was knowing that the back end wasn't going to be so concrete that I couldn't manipulate things. And that's how so it's designed is to allow you to to get more granular as you learn about what needs to be accounted for in the coding process. You can keep fine tuning the pricing engine that we're providing you. 
exactly. And for us, you know, we're, we're a manufacturer that doesn't have anybody with a manufacturing background, which means we build things in ways that most companies wouldn't dream of specifically for the end result of getting a product out quickly. Um, you know, we, we skirt the rules of clamping things and, and skirt the rules of having to hold large objects with toe clamps. Um, and, you know, not everything has to be done in a vice for us. It can be done. If you can hold it in your hand and safely machine it, we'll do that too. So one of the things that I used to, I had experience being a hand-on machinist in a model shop for a year. And I actually use SurfCam. And we use the automotive filler as a way to hold plastic parts for second side machining. I don't know if you've ever mm -hmm. used that technique, but that was sort of crazy, but it's super effective. Yeah, I mean, basically with the prototype, if you, if you can hold it, you can build it. And right. a lot of times the more, the more complex the software gets for designing and the more complicated the designer gets, um, you know, you either start turning to five axis quickly or you have to start turning to, you know, different types of, of fixturing and work holding. Um, and, you know, five axis is great for complex parts, uh, but it's a lot more of a learning curve for the average machinist. And sure. um, on top of that, it's, you know, if you can hold it on a three axis, you can, you can run it. What cam software so. do you use now? So we still use SurfCam. Um, most, most of my new employees um, and the people that have come in to train with me, I've, I've put them on Fusion 360. Why is um, that? The Autodesk community has uh, taken the internet uh, to their advantage. Hmm. There's, and the, the fact, part of the, the fact that it's a subscription based means that it's it's a lot easier for the average person to afford um, mm -hmm. they also allow you to to have a free seat of it if you're not a company or if you're a company who's a nonprofit or you know not one making high revenue um, mm -hmm. but one of the things that that allowed is enough people to download it and figure things out and then upload uh, YouTube videos yep and the beauty yeah. of YouTube is uh, there's a ton of information. The problem with YouTube is not all of it is good, but with, with the ability to watch a YouTube video to solve a problem um, allows you as a business owner not to spend time teaching things that... Right, you can almost curate the good videos and you can bookmark or have a... Uh, a document even with links to the videos that you want essentially creating a training manual on a sequence of videos that that you didn't even have to create that's pretty cool yeah it's very cool whereas surf cam and master cam and you know nx it's you know, most of them you have to send your your employees to a school and you know a one week fully integrated um program without access to machines doesn't actually give you too much of a uh, head right. start. 
the number one thing about machining is you have to know what it's like on a machine. Yeah. And uh, if you well, can my, have your employees learn. The, the other thing, and again, it's probably not politically correct with all the cam resellers out there, but the classes are taught to the least common denominator. Essentially, the what I've seen is the student who is struggling the most and the more advanced folks are bored. So it's a, I, I really like the idea of self-learning through the YouTube. Right. Self-learning is really good. And, you know, it's, and it could be, it could be done with every type of software, but you know, the, the issue is um, software was developed specifically, especially in manufacturing um, with the standard seat license education system, which makes it really difficult. Let me ask you, in regards to paperless parts and how you learn to manipulate, manipulate the P3L language, which is the way that you create the pricing engine, customize the pricing engine, are you willing to create YouTube videos and make them public? to help build the community for other shops out there or am I being wishful in my thinking? No, I, I would absolutely, I would absolutely entertain something like that. But I think moreover, as a, as a shop owner, I would delegate that type of thing to one of my other employees who is, would be a lot more interested in creating videos. Where, okay. But you don't have an issue with your shop. Uh, someone in your shop, whether it's you or someone else, creating essentially tutorials on how to best use the product, whether it's paperless no. or surf cam or whatever. No, I have no problem with that because for me, manufacturing has always been a community. Um, and I'd much rather have more people knowing about manufacturing and more people who want to do it than you know, trying to hold manufacturing close to my chest and thinking that I'm the only shop who can build things and I want to rule the world. Um, right. It's important for me to know that if I need something that somebody down the street knows how to do, I'm friendly enough with them that I can call them up and say, hey, you've got a, an ST15 that can turn parts better than I can mill parts. Um, do you want to do this project? And, you know, it's the same thing with helping people educate themselves is the more information people have, the better asset they are going to be uh, to you in business. Right. And I think this is actually one way and I'll step back with the whole coronavirus pandemic coming back to where we started with, you are going to see product companies reevaluating their supply chain and I think there will be a lot more custom part manufacturing done in the US, but in order to help them more easily make that decision, it has, it's a large part, it's a financial decision. We have to be more efficient as manufacturers and we want to help build our community because as a community, if we're more efficient, there's gonna be more work for all of us. So, I really like how you're approaching it, Brian. And we're getting up towards uh, the time where we should probably wrap up. I, I really have to say, it's been so much fun talking with you. 
I think you're the poster child for the future of local-based manufacturing. You're tech-driven, innovative, community-focused, and I really like how you're applying the technology to meet customer needs. And a big piece of that is speed. We touched upon it some, but that's that's huge. We we have to be as fast as possible and always thinking of ways to cut time. So thanks for taking the time to tell your story, particularly the beginning and how you got going and share some of the different ways you look at manufacturing. So where can people find you and, and CAD models and prototypes on the web? So on the internet, you can find us at cadmodels.com and that's K-A-D-M-O-D-E-L-S.com. Mm -hmm. And on Instagram as well, we're cadmodels with an S. If you do not put the S, you'll find a modeling agency. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you appear on both sites, right, Brian? So, all right. Absolutely. That's a wrap on an exhilarating conversation with such a dynamic young man. This is so much fun for me as a host, and I hope you're getting as much out of the conversation as I am. American ingenuity, like that exhibited by Brian, is what is going to get us through the other side of this coronavirus pandemic and ultimately make us stronger as a country. Maybe you could smile at a stranger today and recognize we are all in this together. Stay strong and best of luck in keeping the spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a super day.